This is Amy Poehler. My new movie, Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2, is coming to theaters June 14th, and it's making me feel joy Woo! and sadness oh. and anger. Ah. Definitely some disgust. Rose! And I think a little fear. Ah. But I'm also feeling these new emotions like anxiety, embarrassment, envy, and ennui. Ah. It's what you call the boredom. Okay, that one was weird. It's going to be the feel-everything movie of the summer. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters June 14. Get tickets now. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Now look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Adam Kempinar. And I'm Josh Larson. They're calling it the airborne toxic event. We won't come this way. Will we have to leave our home? Of course not. How do you know? I just know. Okay, what if it's dangerous? Evacuate all places of residence. Among the crush of -of end-of-year releases was the latest from Noah Baumbach, White Noise, starring Adam Driver and Greta Gerwig. It's an adaptation of what has been described as the unfilmable 1985 novel by Don DeLillo. White Noise is Baumbach's follow-up to 2019's Oscar-nominated Marriage Story. This week, we've got a review of White Noise, along with our top five Noah Baumbach characters. That and more, ahead on Film Spotting. Welcome to Film Spotting. Since it's the first time we're saying it, Josh, Happy New Year to all of our listeners. We hope that they all enjoyed the Top 10 Roundtable show with Mariah Gates and Michael Phillips. That was a lot of fun. Hope to do it again with them next year. Feels like four months ago, but it wasn't. Only a couple of weeks. Yeah. Happy New Year, everybody. We do hope we're going to see many of our listeners this weekend at the Bell House in Brooklyn. We'll talk a little bit more about that later. Did want to share a quick thank you here off the top. I occasionally go to the Film Spotting P.O. box and find goodies in there. Usually not of the edible variety, Josh. This was a first. Two containers of what many people call Buckeyes, peanut butter and chocolate balls, courtesy of Josh Thayer. He's a longtime listener. He's a member of the North Texas Film Critics Association. Really a shame that your Tupperware container, it just, I wasn't going to see you in time. I couldn't bring it to New York, probably Mm -hmm. couldn't bring it on the plane. Uh Had to go ahead and take care of those here at the Kemp in our house. We're going to have to do something about that. Reposition the P.O. box in between us so that we're both equally able to check that thing. I did tell you, though, I joked that I've met Josh. He came to Boulder for Ebert Interruptus there at the Conference of World Affairs. So, I can attest, great guy, those were safe to eat, Adam. Mm -hmm. You should be okay. Yeah, it's been a few days and they're all gone and I'm still here. It's been nice over these last few weeks, Josh, to see people as the letterboxed, your year in review comes up for a lot of people. We've gotten a fair number of notes or seen comments on social media like this one from listener Patricia Collins, who says, when film spotting marathons unduly influence my letterbox year in review, most watch actor for Patricia, Buster Keaton. Most watched director, Buster Keaton. Second most watched actor, Barbara Stanwyck. 
and Patricia said, both the Buster Keaton and Barbara Stanwyck marathons were highlights of my movie-going year. Thanks for spearheading those efforts. I do love to see that. And yeah, I gave Dana Stevens, whose book Cameraman was the impetus for that Keaton marathon, gave her a nod on Twitter today because my most watched actor and director looked exactly the same, thanks to her and our marathon. We also wanted to say thank you to everyone who has been leaving us positive podcast reviews here over the past several weeks that we've been asking our listeners too. It's something we haven't done much of over the almost 18-year history of this show. All the love has been really nice to see. It's definitely helping us to get more listeners, helping us to move up those Apple rankings a little bit. So wanted to say thank you to a few folks this week who left us positive reviews, five-star ratings, and a little bit of feedback, Josh, over on Apple Podcasts, including Ricky White One, who said he started listening to Film Spotting eight years ago and haven't stopped. B Cuts 13 said, my comfort podcast, and you know I was just dying to read this one on air, truly feels like being in a fun movie club with your friends. That's signed by Pooper2110. Pooper2110 apparently started listening when he or she, when they were eight. Not eight years ago, but eight. Quite possibly. Again, thank you to everyone. And if you haven't yet, it just takes a minute. It does help us reach new listeners. Apple Podcasts or Spotify, give us a quick five-star rating and tell the world why you love the show. This week's top five, Josh, is one we did back in 2017. Noah Baumbach characters, not a spoiler to say, Greta Gerwig, very well represented on that top five. She has appeared in four of Baumbach's films. I was maybe a little surprised to see which character landed at number one. Could have been a little bit of recency bias there at play. Maybe. And I'm trying to recall the negotiations. This was a shared list. That's right. How we got to that point. I'm sure it was very tortured, threatened to explode slack. (laughs) Somehow we landed where we did. And I like it. I'm happy with it. I am as well. Maybe that top five will get some people to track down a very good and maybe a little bit forgotten Baumbach film that is Mistress America. We can only hope we will have that top five and more later in the show. But first, the latest from Mr. Misery, White Noise. Do sheep have lashes? Ask your father. We're going sideways. Dad, do sheep have lashes? Doesn't anyone want to pay attention to what's actually happening? I wish there was something I could do. I wish I could outthink the problem. There are two kinds of people in the world. Killers and dyers. Most of us are dyers. One of the many intriguing titles to get lost in the year-end rush, Adam, was Noah Baumbach's White Noise, which came to Netflix on December 30. Despite Baumbach being a critical darling and his last film, Marriage Story, getting a Best Picture Oscar nomination, the early word on this was muted. Having now seen it, I'm surprised things were that quiet, because this is no run-of-the-mill Baumbach film. It's downright bizarre, while still maintaining some signature touches. An adaptation of Don DeLillo's 1985 novel, the movie is expansively tangential, centering on a married couple in a college town with a blended family of four children. It nonetheless darts off in all sorts of directions. White noise encompasses fascist ideology. Jack, the father, is a professor of Hitler studies. Pharmaceutical conspiracies. Babette, the mother, begins sneaking mystery pills. And there's a neo-noir plot twist that plays like something out of Who Framed Roger Rabbit? 
Oh, there's also the toxic cloud that emerges in the wake of a train accident and threatens to poison the town. What unites all these things? I'm sure we'll discuss. What I can't wait to hear first, Adam, is what you made of the movie, which, despite even familiar faces, Baumbach veterans Greta Gerwig and Adam Driver play Jack and Babette, is unlike anything else the writer-director has made. As the bigger Baumbach fan, what was it like to watch him go off the rails? Concerning or exhilarating? Well, this is a movie obsessed with death, Josh. How do you think I felt about it? Yeah, they <laughs> like to hit that theme a little bit. Uh-huh. It's it's prevalent in this film. This is top five bound back for me. And maybe that doesn't mean a whole lot when I've got 11 films total ranked on Letterboxd, but it's in the top half and it could have been a little bit higher, honestly. I would put it in contention with The Squid and the Whale and maybe even Mistress America. It could be in the top three. Our friends Griffin Newman and David Sims are the experts on this subject, of course. But just like Damien Chazelle following up La La Land with the sprawling Babylon, you're right. White Noise feels like something different in a lot of ways. It feels like a departure. It feels like Baumbach's blank check. <laughs> I don't know the backstory, but I'm guessing he wanted to adapt this film for some time and the biggest success of his career made it possible either financially or in terms of his confidence as a filmmaker or maybe both. I definitely wasn't frustrated even as I am still wrapping my head around the film. I love that phrase you used in your setup expansively tangential as I was taking notes earlier today. And this is one of the benefits of a film like this that we're reviewing being on Netflix and you can just bring it up and start watching it again. I was thinking about the film and taking it in again. It felt a lot less expansively tangential the second time, which probably happens with any movie you watch for the second time. I really felt it the first time, including the things you mentioned. It's a pandemic movie. It's a consumerist satire. It's a satire of academia above all. It is not surprisingly, a marriage story and the story of a family that in its own bizarre way might be the most functional and relatable Baumbach has ever portrayed. That's the dynamic that really grounded White Noise for me. The fact that Baumbach approaches especially that element of this film so earnestly and not only earnestly, but compassionately. How easy would it have been to make not just Driver's character, Jack Gladney, with his blue sunglasses and pot belly and ill-fitting clothes and Babette with that absurdly curly hair, which I love Don Cheadle's character, Marie, at one point calls a living wonder. <laughs> not just them, <laughs> but everyone else who inhabits this skewed world, they all could have easily been objects of ridicule. But they're not presented to laugh at or mock at all. And their struggles feel, especially after the last couple of years, eerily familiar, don't they? The denial, trying to maintain life as usual amidst a life-altering catastrophe, the constant bombardment of information and misinformation, and the overwhelming pace of it, not knowing who to listen to or to trust. But the sense with all of that, that as long as we can all keep going to the supermarket 
and walk up and down the aisles. And as Murray again says, maybe even smell the oven aroma of bread combined with the sight of a bloodstained man pounding strips of living veal. Well, then life is very exciting. Life is normal. Life is fulfilling. And I had, as I was watching it the first time, no bearing for this film. I couldn't compare it to anything, honestly. Take Shelter was the closest thing I could come to by way of a comparison. Thinking about the storm, the husband trying to protect his family. But it was more than that. It was a line early on from Gerwig's Babette that actually clued me in, Josh, where she says, life is good, Jack. And he says, what brings this on? They're laying in bed together. And she says, I just feel it ought to be said. This idea in both films of accepting life as it is, of appreciating it, but then with that, the dread that it all could come to an end. These are the types of concerns, I think, that do go largely unspoken in real life, like our day-to-day lives, but that doesn't make them unreal. And I think it's it's art like white noise, films like white noise that compel us to contemplate those things that we feel, but we want to deny. And with all that said, the film's so amusingly surreal that it doesn't feel portentous at all. At least it didn't to me. So yeah, I did see it's got a 63% on Rotten Tomatoes. That means it's generally getting favorable reviews, but I'm a little mystified that it's not getting more love. It's not portentous. It's, it is surreal. I would say it's also very absurdist and Mm -hmm. in its own way, a distinction, which you were talking about is that this is maybe despite all the talk of death, Bombeck's sunniest film, a most positive in some ways film about the human condition Mm -hmm. without being sentimental about that, without being a non-realist. I think that's where it essentially ends up and it earns that surprise ending for me as well. Just quickly, we should note as I'm looking over his filmography and trying to find other sunny pictures, I do see here that he directed a 2012 TV movie version of the Jonathan Franzen novel Corrections, which I did not see. So I don't know, somewhat similar project in terms of trying to adapt an ambitious, sprawling novel as well. But certainly among the movies, the feature films, all of which I've seen, I think this does strike me as his sunniest. It also strikes me as one of his best This was a lot of fun for me. I think, you know, our top fives likely look very different, but it's going to be in there for me as well. And I think it was the fact that it did take such a big, strange swing. For me, it's always been the Baumbach movies that allow him to get out of his own head that I appreciate the most. And I think of the collaborations with Gerwig, you know, where she was star and co-writer for Francis Ha and Mistress America. Those are among my favorite films that he's directed. I also think of, and here's where my comparison will come in, you know, he was a co-writer on the Wes Anderson films Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou and Fantastic Mr. Fox. Mm -hmm. If anything to me, this is like Fantastic Mr. Fox. And it's not only that grocery store that we visit a number of times and actually get a wonderful dance sequence at the end of the movie. Wonderful. As you do in Fantastic Mr. Fox. It's also this sense of exploring a midlife crisis, a shared midlife crisis in some ways within Mm -hmm. a married couple. We maybe will differ. We can get to as to um, how human these characters are here compared to some of his other characters. But I do agree with you that it is very interested in this marriage. It's interested in 
the existential crises being faced by both of them, which echo, you know, Mr. Fox was going through this middle-aged career crisis. That was essentially what the narrative was about in the Wes Anderson film. And that's what we have here. We have this couple who are existentially overwhelmed by life, even as Mm -hmm. they appreciate the things they have, as you said, they also have those moments where it's bearing down on them and they don't know how to sustain it, especially in the face, coming full circle here, to the terrifying specter of death. And they approach it different ways. As you said, Jack, the driver character, he's he is all about denial, right? He's just, even though his work is intellectually engrossed in the concept of death, in his everyday life, he doesn't want to think about it. Whereas Babette, she is wrestling with the reality every day and starting to wilt under the pressure mm-hmm. of what that means. Now, they don't share this with each other for much of the film. And we see all of these other events which are representing how close death actually is. These wild, various events and then how people respond to that, whether they respond in you know, towards fascism, the crowds that followed Hitler, whether they respond towards entertainment. The Cheadle character is also an aspiring Elvis scholar. And how about the fantastic scene where the two professors give a duet lecture, one about Hitler, one about Elvis at the same time? Elvis could hardly bear to let Gladys out of his sight as her condition grew worse. He kept vigil at the hospital. When his mother became severely ill, Hitler put a bed in the kitchen to be closer to her. Elvis fell he apart when Gladys died. He wept at the grave and fell into a period of depression and self-pity. He talked their baby talk. For the rest of his life, Seems Hitler couldn't bear to Gladys be near death Christmas decorations caused a because fundamental his mother shift had died near a Christmas tree. The king's worldview. Years later, Elvis began to withdraw from deep from remoteness. Hitler to enter a, a state of his, his own dying. His Spartan quarters at Obersalzburg. He began to hear a buzzing in his left ear. That is what ties in all of these strange tangential tracks that the movie goes down is considering a universal question. In the face of death, how do we live? Knowing we're going to die, what are we going to do with the time? And the movie has a lot of fun playing Mm -hmm. around with that question while also not taking it too lightly where it verges over to become something that feels nihilistic, which maybe some other Baumbach films have felt a little bit to me. I do want to talk a little bit more about that Elvis-Hitler scene in the classroom and more about the craft, but I'm going to go back to what I was touching on and your word there, humanity. I think about an early scene between Babette and Jack where they're talking and they're walking along the sidewalk and the way we get an emphasis on the different ways or the different moments where they touch hands with each other, the different ways they touch each other during that scene. That's a moment where I feel them as real people and feel that connection between them. And I feel their humanity. How about a great single shot we get that I believe lets us know that they've just had sex. (laughs) They have some kind of ritual. She asks if he wants her to read to him. And he gets out like a sexy novel. And just with a single cut of his arm dropping to the floor, to the side of the bed, thumbing through the pages like he's letting go of it and it falling, that tells us that something has just transpired. I love that little touch. Later in the film, I won't spoil anything, but 
there's a moment where he feels a real sense of betrayal and jealousy and all of that felt very human to me and very realistic, Josh, even though everything that's swirling around these characters is, you said absurd, it's absurd, it's a little bit crazy. And that scene I mentioned where they're holding hands, she touches on something again as I think about Take Shelter and some of the underlying messages of this film. She sums something up so perfectly, Gerwig does with some dialogue, where she says everything in life, everything in her life is either or. She says, either I chew regular gum or I chew sugarless gum. And this is a reference to an exchange with her daughters, one, I think, a stepdaughter, one, her biological daughter in the supermarket where they're giving her grief about testing lab rats to produce this gum or something. And she basically can't win. She says, you know, which one, which one do I pick? I'm going wrong either way. Then she says, either I chew gum or I smoke, either I smoke or I gain weight. Either I gain weight or I run up the stadium steps. And he says, it sounds like a boring life. And she says, I hope it goes on forever. And she means it, of course, because part of that is that dread and that fear of death, which he also feels. But isn't life a series of those types of compromises and conundrums? And yet, what are we all most terrified of, just like them, not getting to face or not getting to make those compromises or facing these conundrums anymore? So that's just another example for me of the way Baumbach grounds this film in something quite real and something quite profound and universal admits all of the insanity. That's a very nice exchange between them in the grocery store. And I also love that you called out the hand-holding moment because there is such humanity there. I still do think for me, and maybe it's just thinking of performances in something like Marriage Story that are so raw in a very different human way. I did find that they were playing, not that the movie was making fun of them, but they're very much playing capital C characters in this movie. And a lot of it does come down to the costume design, the hair design, these sorts of things. Um, Those elements do a lot of work in making us, again, not laugh at them, but see them a little more to me as clowns we should maybe laugh with, not at, you could say. And it strikes me that Driver seems to be going through this something of a character phase right now. If you include this performance, whatever was happening in House of Gucci, and to a degree, you could point to Annette as well. Very extreme, very physical um, performances that depend, again, on costuming, on manners of speaking. And these aren't bad performances necessarily, but they're of a different kind than what he is doing in Marriage Story. So I guess that's the only distinction I would make in terms of the performances that are being done here by two Baumbach veterans compared to what they've done in other films of his. I do get that. But for me, I'll just say that after I got past those introductory scenes, him looking at the parade of station wagons on campus the first day and then going home to his house and post that really first scene where I, as a viewer, was just able to start to get whatever bearings I could with this film. And I could start to understand the tone and we built up some experience with these characters. Pretty early on, I made the switch, Josh, from seeing them as absurd characters, to seeing them just as completely real people in unreal circumstances, again, or surreal circumstances. But I saw them as any other married couple. And that, again, for me, is really one of the strengths of the film. But I do want to get back to 
kind of your opening question and talking about this as a departure for him and the ambition of this film. This is a director who made a movie about Brian De Palma, but who would never get put in the same sentence with Brian De Palma otherwise as a stylist, right? Sure. And I haven't I haven't rewatched any of his earlier films, but I think it's fair to say we all think of those films in particular as very talky. When we talk about Baumbach, or at least when we did early on, we focused on the writing and the acting much more so than the visuals if we talked about the visuals at all. I've sensed that change over the years, have talked about it when we reviewed his movies really since while we're young and probably Francis Ha even before that. Of course, the films have remained undeniably talky, and this one is as well. But it just seems like I look back through my notes, every review, I find myself commenting on camera and editing choices. So to come to White Noise and see something that is, at least in terms of it taking a big swing, in terms of its ambition, feels De Palma-like, that is something that certainly didn't frustrate me. And in fact, it kind of thrilled me, but it also felt like a natural evolution. I looked at the cast list here to see if these were some of the familiar people he's worked with. The DP is Lal Crawley, who he hadn't worked with before, at least if I'm reading IMDb correctly. Same with the editor, Matthew Hannum. And I think the first time working with Jess Gonshore, the production designer, who did a bunch of Cone Brothers stuff and did Little Women for Gerwig, but otherwise hasn't worked with Baumbach. And I do want to say about the production design, we talked about the supermarket a little bit. This is another case where you would imagine a film like this, especially having that consumerist satire element that it does, that it might take a fairly pedestrian and conventional approach to those scenes and depict the supermarket as sterile or oppressively symmetrical and aligned and, and all the shelves and the, the boxes are such that they just kind of overwhelm you. Here, they're actually, they're brightly lit. Everything about the boxes and the shelves are dynamically colorful, which isn't to say that the movie's tried to glorify supermarkets or consumerism, but I think it's allowing for the fact that these places are by design intended to be places of escape or at least solace, where everything is controlled and anything you want is within your grasp. A lot of the production design reminded me of a very bright 80s sitcom. And of course, this is set in the 80s. But think about that classroom lecture hall yeah. where the Elvis Hitler scene takes place. And there are rainbow designs on the wall. Right. There's even, I don't know if it's ever quite explained. Maybe I just missed it. But they are filming these lectures by these two professors. So it has very much the feel almost of a game show, an 80s game show, you know, where the students are the are the live audience. And so that permeates the house domestic scenes, this very busy house where all mm -hmm. of the kids are talking at once. That has a feeling too. So yeah, it does capture a sense of an era, but it also captures a sense of brightness, a sense of vitality. That vitality. This is, this is life being lived. It may be generic, in the case mm -hmm. of the supermarket, but this is nevertheless where these people live their lives. That's right. I think this is really a gorgeous film, and I especially felt that way rewatching the first half of it or so earlier today. We've touched on a few of the scenes, and some of the scenes I want to credit in particular the cinematographer and editor and the production designer for, but the opening of the film, that opening lecture that 
Cheadle's character gives about car crashes in American cinema. That in itself is a gorgeous montage intercut with these lovely shots of students, their faces and Cheadle lecturing felt a little bit familiar, especially this year, as we talk so much about the magic of movies and characters or people's faces reflected in that glow of the light. We get that here, but it's definitely taking a little bit more of an atypical approach in the way it's glorifying, of all things, car crashes in American films. But I loved that. The first aerial shot then of campus and all those students arriving. I mentioned it earlier, the day of the station wagons, as Jack's character calls it. The Altman-esque camera work and the audio eavesdropping on these different conversations moving through the crowd. The tempo of that first family scene. How do astronauts float? They're lighter than air. There is no air. They can't be lighter than something that isn't there. Not that we don't have a station wagon. We're small and rude. space was cold. It's a whole rusted door. Space? Or station wagon. It's called the Sun's Corolla. We saw it the other night on the Weather Network. I thought Corolla was a car. Everything's a car. Where's Wilder? Wilder? Wilder. Everyone on the move. The overlapping dialogue. We saw a little bit of this in Marriage Story for sure, and it's even more frenetic here. And if you notice at the grocery store, when they're shopping as a family unit, mm-hmm. all the all the kids move exactly the same way they move in the kitchen at the store. They dart in these straight lines ahead of the shopping cart, going in and out of the, the aisles and moving towards the different products they need to pick up, all while maintaining this conversation and inquiring about things with each other. Nothing is wasted here. Even a shot of Denise, one of the daughters played by Raffi Cassidy, where she gets her mother's medication, her pill box, the pill container out of the trash to look at it. She holds it up to the light. Oh, the reflection. Yeah, the reflection. And we get that amber glow reflected on her face for a second. This is a film that has those kind of really beautiful shots in it and takes the time for those. How about the match cut from driver talking to his class about plots and he's moving towards the camera and he's straight on in the middle, but moving away from the camera leading one of her classes. And you mentioned the Elvis Hitler lecture. That's Cheadle and Adam driver just performing a ballet. It's so fun. they're, They're each taking their turns, talking to the class, playing off each other. Then they come together to dance simultaneously. And the theatrics of it are kind of brilliant and hilarious. The way Driver disappears at one point, like he's he's letting Cheadle, his Murray character, have the floor to do his solo. But then all of a sudden he appears in a window. And and reemerges onto the scene. I just want to mention a couple more. How about how about I give one or two before you steal them all? <laughs> okay, okay, I'll stop there, Josh. We'll see if you get to a couple more that I'm going to. I was going to jump in with Denise because you were, uh, yeah. uh, but you were on such a roll. So um, yeah, Denise, the daughter. There's another lovely shot where she is in the back seat of the station wagon. The whole family is in. Jack is driving and the two of them have been in private conversation about Babette taking these pills. They're trying Mm -hmm. to figure it out without confronting her what's going on. And something in relation to the pills comes up in conversation. Jack looks in the rearview mirror and suddenly we see that his image in the rearview mirror goes green and we get the answer why, but 
Bombeck holds it just a minute to let us figure that out, mm -hmm. which I did. And I was grateful for that extra second because I realized, oh, it's because Denise has been wearing this the translucent visor. green visor for much of the film. Again, another period marker. Mm -hmm. And so she's looking up at him through the visor so that Babette doesn't see her looking and making eye contact in the mirror. But just again, it's, it's not needed at all for that movie to play, but it's another bit of visual ambition and mm -hmm. playfulness that is a step forward, I think, for Baumbach as a visual filmmaker. And I'll, I'll throw it back to you, but really quickly, perhaps the ultimate, you know, example of this, this is a Noah Baumbach movie with a split diopter shot. It in is. A hotel Speaking of De Palma. At, at that point, we know we're, we're over the rainbow in new yes. territory. Yeah, absolutely. I was just going to mention, you were talking about color. It's a great transition. The scene at the gas station where... He gets exposed. There's a Spielberg level use of color there. Yeah. The red and yellow playing off the Shell gas station sign, which makes sense for this film. But with splashes of that kind of alien green and the emphasis on sound, the door banging open and shut and the fact that everything else otherwise is quiet and desolate. That's beautiful. And then the scene at the motel later in the film where he goes to confront someone driver's character that's even more striking that's like a twisted multiverse Wong Kar Wai world which we got in everything everywhere all at once but this is a little bit more demented but it still uses color in that really vivid way and I do love the bound back after opening with that lecture about car chases and wrecks in American cinema he even gets his own <laughs> grand fiery wreck and car chase scene in the film, Josh. And it's it's all the things Murray says it is in that opening. Think of these crashes like you would Thanksgiving and the 4th of July. On these days, we don't mourn the dead or rejoice in miracles. No, these are days of secular optimism, of self-celebration. Each crash is meant to be better than the last. There's Murray is so great. I mean, Don Cheadle, why don't we get more of him is... Kind of question. I know he's gotten caught up a little bit in the MCU. Maybe that's it. But you see him just so dry and straight faced delivering these these observations about Elvis in particular and life in general. He's he's just a treasure here. Yeah, he really is. And to go back to what this film is about or what it made me think about beyond appreciating it on a craft level, that sequence where the cloud comes. And the dad is trying to just get through dinner. <laughs> and that line he has at one point as things are getting really chaotic. What do we have for dessert? <laughs> he's he's just trying to preserve order. Get, yeah, preserve order and get everybody's mind on the idea that no, life isn't spiraling out of control. This can't be real. And it's because he doesn't want it to be for his own sake, but he doesn't want it to be spiraling out of control. For his family's sake as well. And I think this feeling you have as the dad, as a mom, where you're supposed to be providing that order and structure, which is something they don't do a whole lot of in this film in the sense that the kids do always seem one step ahead of them or maybe even smarter than they are. But in terms of capturing the anxiety of our last two years, Josh, I don't know that any movie gets it better that we've seen so far than that 10 minutes or so. From the start of dinner to the end of dinner, where now 
they've gone from in a matter of one minute, they've gone from we have to get out of here to stay alive to we're too late. Mm. That really was a wonder for me. Yeah, there are definitely shades in that scene of the March, the March night, 2020. I remember we were watching, I was watching an NBA game, a player doesn't show up, you know, positive for COVID. I think two hours later, Tom Hanks goes down and it was just like, wait a minute, this, this is, this is getting to be something we're going to have to deal with. Mm -hmm. White noise is something we think our listeners should deal with. If you haven't yet, it's currently available exclusively on Netflix. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. I'm going to put on a show at this famous theater. People are numb, disconnected. We're going to wake them up with a wave of passion they've never felt before. Hell yeah. A bit of the trailer there for Magic Mike's Last Dance, which reunites Channing, Magic Mike Tatum, with director Steven Soderbergh. He, of course, helmed the 2012 Magic Mike original. Last Dance is just one of several 2023 sequels, Josh, that we're actually curious about. Oh, for sure. And I've already promised Debbie a Magic Mike marathon. She hasn't seen any of them, so that will be happening this year. Okay. In a couple of weeks, we will share our 2023 movie preview. So we have a new film spotting poll question looking ahead to that show. The question, which is more of a command, really, you can see one. Here we are with the incinerator test more or less at play. You can only see one 2023 sequel choose josh your first option spider-man across the spider-verse this is a sequel to what some people have claimed is the best spider-man movie 2018's into the spider-verse another option creed 3 adonis creed himself michael b jordan is taking on directing duties for this third installment co-starring jonathan majors dune part two the denis Villeneuve saga continues fast x Fast and Furious Saga really continues. We also have Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3, Indiana Jones, and The Dial of Destiny. Important note, I think, mm -hmm. this one directed by James Mangold. So take that into consideration. We're going to get another John Wick, the fourth one there. As we mentioned, Magic Mike's Last Dance. And then your last option, aside from other, is Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning. This is the first Mission Impossible since 2018. We got Fallout then. And this is new to me. I see Sam's note here. Apparently, Dead Reckoning is the first part of a two-film series. I don't know how to handle that. The sequels thing is enough. Now we're getting two-part sequels. Okay, whatever. You choose one of those as the one you want to see. And as you mentioned, you can vote other if somehow the Ant-Man movie, the third Ant-Man movie, is more intriguing to you than all of those other options. There's another Aquaman movie coming, Shazam, the Marvels, etc. Josh, looking over this list, I was sure with 27 options, one of them would jump out as the clear winner for me. And I'm going to be honest, that didn't happen. I feel about all of these choices 
about the same. <laughs> I'm curious about all of them. I'd like to see all of them. I don't know that I'm dying to see any of them. I did try to apply the multiplex test where you are walking into the theater, you see the titles, you can only go into one, you'll never see the other films. I guess that led me to an answer. Where are you at? Boy, uh, you know, I would have said Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny if Spielberg was behind it. Now, James Mangold's Logan, sort of in the same genre area, was very good. So that gives me some hope for it. But, you know, not as much hope as I would have otherwise. Loved Spider-Verse. Can't wait for another one of those. So that's in the running. Was intrigued by Dune and felt as if it needed part two to really fulfill Definitely. its promise. So, mm -hmm. so that one is up there as well. All that being said... It might be Dead Reckoning. Really? It might be the Mission Impossible film. I, it just it just seems like even though it's part of a series and apparently part one of whatever you want to call this now, that seems like it's going to be the most unique experience than any of the others that we have on this list. That's maybe where I'm going to go for for right now. Okay. Definitely in the running for me. As I said, they're all kind of about the same. Across the Spider-Verse, I feel like is the cool kid answer. And I really did like Into the Spider-Verse, but maybe didn't swoon for it the way most everyone else I know did. Creed 3, I've liked the previous two Creed movies, and I'm curious about what Michael B. Jordan will do here as a director and actor. And Jonathan Majors, not a surprise what that guy has become for us since falling in love with him as an actor in our Golden Brick winner, the last black man in San Francisco. He's just incredible in that film. And it's been nice to see the trajectory his career has taken. Watching clips from the movie, he just looks like a beast in that film. I think it does come down for me, Josh, to Indiana Jones. And it's ironic, maybe, because you mentioned James Mangold and him directing Logan and that actually being a strike in its favor. I didn't care much for Logan but Indiana Jones is still my pick. And I think it's just because of my attachment to the Indiana Jones legacy. And of all these films, whether I ultimately really like the film or not, it feels like the one that's probably the least disposable. It's the experience I have to see. I think for me, part of it has to do with Harrison Ford being involved too. I, I don't know how many... You know, honest, honestly, how many big films we're going to get with him. And I feel like, boy, I don't even want to say this because who knows what it, what the future holds. But I feel like he's one of these old school actors you could still like and root for. I think that's still allowed. That's still okay, if you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. And so it's something more about the persona and the character and the actor and getting to see all of that together again that gives that one real appeal for me. Sam, our producer, did put out a Twitter version of this poll, as he usually does. You can only have four options, and it's pretty evenly split. Now, John Wick 4 is way at the bottom, under 4% of the vote. But otherwise, Josh, it's Dune Part 2 coming in with 39%, Dead Reckonings 32 and Across the Spider-Verse at 25 So pretty tight there. Yeah, I'm kind of with the the John Wick vote as well. I, mm -hmm. I just diminishing returns, diminishing returns. Thank you. It's true. Hate to yeah. say it, but it's true. 
Yeah. You can vote in our poll now and leave a comment at filmspotting.net. Results from our most recent film spotting poll will be announced at this weekend's big live show in Brooklyn. It's our 2022 rap party live with our guests, Dana Stevens, Griffin Newman, Matt Singer, and Allison Wilmore. The poll asked you to name your pick for the film that should win the 2022 Golden Brick Award. That's our annual award that goes to the overlooked or underseen film of the year from a new or emerging director. We do have a little tease. We're very excited to have a video acceptance speech from this year's winner that we will share at the live show. Yeah, and I got a sneak peek at that. It is is just lovely, very thoughtful. So happy that we were able to get that and get to share it at the live show. Depending on when you hear this episode, that live show may have passed. But in case you happen to be hearing this prior to 8 p.m. Eastern Time, Saturday, January 14th, and you might be in the New York area, there are a limited number of tickets available. You can get them online or you can just show up at the Bell House in Brooklyn. More info available at filmspotting.net slash events. If you can't make it, you can hear it next week in podcast form. But Josh, we just got a ticket update today. We're going to have a very good crowd. And at this point, as we're taping this, we still have three or four nights left of ticket sales. So expecting that to get even better. We're going to see a lot of faces that we don't know, that we only maybe know by name, having written in to film spotting over the years or knowing them from social media. And then there's people we've gotten to know virtually through the film spotting family or through trivia spotting who are coming out people from all over. We've got Mike Merrigan coming from he's in New Hampshire, isn't he? I think that sounds right over. We've got Bailey Clark coming from Bilrica, Massachusetts, Taylor Cole coming from Evanston, Illinois, all the way out to New York, following us out to New York just to be part of this event and really to get to hang with these other film spotting listeners. The fact that this community has become such a tight one, even more so in recent years, thanks to the family and trivia spotting and events like that really is one of the most rewarding parts of this. I cannot wait to meet everyone. And yeah, if it's if it's 7.45 p.m. Eastern time, January 14, you're just walking around Brooklyn yep. listening to this. Listening. Come on over. You know where to find us. We also wanted to give a quick shout out to everybody who was able to join me for a London meetup that took place over the holidays. As you know, Josh, I was in London, did a little bit of traveling with my wife and my oldest son. He's studying abroad this semester, so we were taking him back to the UK, but we were also making up for his 2020 high school graduation present that didn't happen due to COVID. So we got to London and Oxford, where he's at, and also Amsterdam and Copenhagen. So one of the nights we were in London, got together with some film spotters. There's a photo of us if you'd like to check it out at the BFI Southbank Riverfront Bar. That's on Facebook and Twitter, facebook.com slash filmspotting or Twitter at filmspotting. And I do want to say thanks to Andrew, Scott, Sanaya, Harry, Alex, Malcolm, Adam, and Ian. Josh, this was Malcolm's fourth film spotting meetup. He oh, wow. Might, he might have the record because he did mine here. He did yours in London a few years back. Yep. And then he had been part of two previous meetups that Maddie, your predecessor, had done, one in Windsor and one in London. And he did tell me that I wasn't the most boring film spotting host. Now, that doesn't mean he thought you or Maddie were boring. He just wasn't willing to say I was the most boring. 
Okay. Not not quite sure how to take that, but <laughs> glad you could make it there, Malcolm. Yeah. I uh, I tried to organize a meetup, Adam. You know, I went the way of water on our vacation, mm. some snorkeling, and I all I, I just ran into what are the space whales? The Takum. Tukum. Tukum. Yeah. Yeah. I had a meetup with some Tukum. It was wondrous <laughs> and I'm enlightening. Sure. Yeah. You made friends. You latched on. You mm-hmm. helped take some clamp off their fin or whatever. Shared war stories, uh-huh. compared wounds. <laughs> Communicated telepathically. It was, yeah. As one does. And actually, I think there was a Takum who has um, participated in six film spotting meetups <laughs> telepathically. Uh-huh. So take that, Malcolm. Okay. Thanks as well to our friend, Nigel Smith from the Tufnell Park Film Club. He couldn't make it. I know he was at yours. He couldn't make it to mine. He was out of town with the family, but helped me organize it, gave me some advice. And Wayne Gooderham, who's also from the Tufnell Park Film Club, was very helpful in allowing us to stow a bag, Josh, during our stay. So film spotters just coming in very handy, being very helpful, as always, when we are on the road. Thank you. I'm not going to ask any questions about that bag. Don't. (laughs) Let's take a moment to pay tribute to one of the best cinematographers in film history. All you have to do is look at the list of titles. Owen Reutzman just passed away this last Friday, 86 years old, five-time Oscar nominee, Josh, and you can share what Christopher McQuarrie, speaking of Dead Reckoning, tweeted in honor of Owen Reisman. He started listing some of the credits here for Reisman, The French Connection, The Exorcist, The Taking of Pelham 123, The Stepford Wives, Three Days of the Condor, Network, Straight Time, Taps, Tootsie, and then he just added Inimitable, Indelible, Unsung. Absolutely. And he also shot Elaine May's The Heartbreak Kid. I didn't know this until today. But one of my favorite movies as a kid that maybe isn't up to the quality of these others, Josh, but hey, I still love it. Vision Quest and the Paul Newman, Sally Field film, Absence of Malice. But The French Connection, The Exorcist, and speaking of car chases, still maybe the best one ever in film history, The French Connection. The Exorcist, say what you will about it, Josh, whether or not you appreciate it. And I know you don't on the level I do. You cannot quibble with the cinematography. And then we talked about Reutzman and his great work on Network when we revisited that film as part of our 7 from 76 series. Yeah. I mean, when it comes to The Exorcist, that's one of those movies where maybe most people, you hear the name and you think of the cinematography first, those shots. The shots. Outside the townhouse. Um, I mean, okay, people probably think of the puking first, but definitely the cinematography is up there and it's absolutely one of the best qualities of the movie. Yeah, if you haven't seen all of those films or need to see some of them, definitely do yourself a favor and check out the amazing work and career of Owen Reutzman. This week over on our sister podcast, The Next Picture Show, they have a new pairing. It's 1988's Child's Play. Yeah, you know where this is going. Let me see if I'm I'm saying this correctly. It's it's Mithrigan. It's Mithrigan, right? <laughs> I, I think I think Sam's note here. I think he's playing a joke on. Oh, us. but but it has a. It's Mithrigan. I'm looking. Right, oh, okay. It's it's Megan. It's go, Megan. Go Josh. with Megan, though. I neither of us have seen it, so we don't know. I mean, we don't it, know. Maybe it is Mithrigan. <laughs> Next Picture Show, of course, is a podcast that looks at cinema's present via its past. 
The next picture show is hosted by Tasha Robinson, Keith Phipps, Scott Tobias, and Jedeviv Koski. They post new episodes every Tuesday wherever you get your podcasts. Time to get to this week's top five. We are revisiting our Noah Baumbach characters, Josh, in honor of our review, our very positive review of his latest White Noise. This is from October 2017 when we reviewed Baumbach's The Meyerowitz Stories, New and Selected. So it precedes both White Noise, of course, and 2019's Marriage Story, which I do have as my number one Noah Baumbach film on my letterbox list. As we do look over our top five, it was a joint list. That means we agreed on the top three, diverged a little bit, or had some personal choices in the fourth and fifth slots, as our listeners will hear again here in a second. If you look at that list and then you look at the films we didn't get a chance to include, the Meyerowitz stories, this is a film, a very good film. I think we were both positive on it, that has Adam Sandler in it. Dustin Hoffman, Emma Thompson, Ben Stiller, oh, and also Sigourney Weaver, Judd Hirsch, and Adam Driver appear in the film. Elizabeth Marvel, maybe not as well known, but has a great role Possibly in the Myra stories. Performance in yeah, the film, yeah. Maybe so. And then, of course, the acting showcase that is Marriage Story and the work there from Adam Driver and Scarlett Johansson. It'd be hard not to pick at least one character from either of those films and not at least consider them as pantheon bound back characters. Yeah, I think this is what's nice about having done this list as a joint one. If we were to revisit it and split it up, Mm -hmm. I easily can find a way looking at what I have here to move in both Adam Driver and Scarlett Johansson for Baird's story. I think I would have to do that. Is that a cheat you'd allow, Josh? I know. I, I I think I could even make them separate picks. Okay. I could. Yeah. So if we ever do revisit it, wait for that to happen. And who knows when we get to it, there may be a couple more Bombac films we consider too. I looked over my notes on the Myrowitz stories. And at the time I said it was as good a work as Adam Sandler had done in his career and same with Ben Stiller. So those would be two others that I would definitely consider. And you're right. Elizabeth Marvel was a standout for both of us as well. Let's go back though to 2017 and here are top five bound back characters. Let's go to the hole. <laughs> no, no way, no hole for me. That's where we're comfortable. That's that's where the fun is. Freshman pennies are there. I don't need to go to a campus bar to be reminded of my lack of success with a bunch of thrill-seeking, snotty college kids. That's us. We're like celebrities to them. No, we were celebrities. Now going back would be like doing Hollywood Squares. I'm too nostalgic, I'll admit it. We graduated four months ago. Can you possibly be nostalgic for? I'm nostalgic for Chris Eigeman and Jason Wiles there in 1995's Kicking and Screaming, the debut film as a writer and director for Noah Baumbach. And I think that character, one of those two characters in that scene, really should be the inspiration for a lot of people listening. Maybe you are pregnant, maybe you're having a child, and you're thinking Skippy. Skippy is the name I'm going to go with. You should probably rethink that. Maybe. No Grover? No Grover, Miami. There really is only one Grover, and he lives on Sesame Street. That's right. No one else should be Grover. But there are an abundance of odd names in Kicking and Screaming, or at least I suppose odd to us, Josh. And we're not going to focus on character names. We're going to focus on the characters themselves as we share our top five Bombat characters. And we have some overlap here. It's kind of surprising. We started out thinking about this in terms of our favorite scenes or moments from his movies, decided it might be a little more approachable and more fun, too, if we talked about some of his more memorable characters instead. And it turned out that we actually share a top three. So 
This I is think like, we just got it right, Josh. What did I they call that? Right. Solar eclipse? Yeah. From a month or so yep. back? We're experiencing that right now. <laughs> right now. Show. Three agreed <laughs> picks at the top. But we have some variation at five and four, which we're going to get to now. Who's your number five? My number five does come from kicking and screaming. It's not, however, one of the four, right? There's four central buddies. I think so. Yeah. It's Chet. It's Eric Stoltz. <laughs> really? Who's kind of like hanging around outside of the circle when he's not tending bar. This is, as you mentioned, Bombeck's 1995 debut. And yeah, you've got these four really smart, literate buddies at the center who are just petrified at the thought of leaving their comfortable college bubble after they've graduated. And then Chet is this guy who's very comfortable outside of the college bubble because he's never really left. He's a bartender just outside of campus. He's still a perennial student, takes classes. I don't know if he's ever, does he say if he's actually graduated or not? I'm not sure. I don't think so. But it's been about 10 years. The way he describes it, he just likes to learn. Some people need to have a, a, a real career, which is something that I've never really understood, you know, why someone would want to be a vet or a lawyer or a filmmaker. I'm paraphrasing myself here, but I am a student and that's what I chose. You might need to choose something else and that's... What I liked about Chet in Kicking and Screaming is he's this crucial balance to the movie's otherwise overworked post-college angst. Mm -hmm. Like, all the other guys are kind of dealing with the same thing, pretty much. And he's something of a clown, yes. He's he's a joke at first. Like, who's that guy still hanging around? But then he sort of moves into this position of being a mystic, in a way, where they come to respect at least his contentment in life yes. that he's found, if not his particular situation. He's he's sort of like the best possible version of McConaughey's Wooderson in Dazed and Confused. Maybe right? so. Another guy who yeah. hung around far too long for maybe uh, less savory reasons. No, that's there in that character for sure. And I think a perfect balance to that is you talk about angsty discontentment. Sam nailed it with the clip he played. For me, it's Max, the Chris Eigeman character from Kicking and Screaming at number five. And I think we all got introduced to him probably even before this with Whit Stillman, Metropolitan, Barcelona in 1990, and then 1994 for Barcelona. And then he was also in The Last Days of Disco in 98. So when you think about these filmmakers who are hyper-literate and have this very smart dialogue and sarcastic dialogue, Chris Eigeman's like the poster boy for these guys in a lot of ways because of these performances and these characters. And Sam pulled the best scene in the movie for that character for me in terms of illustrating that wit that comes through and that angst. But the best part of it is actually what follows what we just heard, where he's talking about how he's too nostalgic to get caught up in these college activities. And the Skippy character says, we graduated four months ago. What are you, what are you possibly nostalgic for? And he says, I'm nostalgic for conversations I had yesterday. I've begun reminiscing events before they even occur. I'm reminiscing this right now. I can't go to the bar because I've already looked back in it in my memory, and I didn't have a good time. There is something truthful about it. There is something that I think taps into. Certainly, these are characters, Josh, in the mid-90s, just graduating from college. Same time we were graduating from college. These are Gen Xers. This isn't the same dynamic as sort of the millennial generation or Gen Z today. It's a little bit of a different sensibility. And this idea that somehow they're already 
sort of lost and burdened by nostalgia, I think, felt right to me at the time when I saw this back in the late 90s, and it feels even more right to me now somehow. But in addition to that, I think of that Max character kind of as the fool. We laugh at him a lot, and we laugh at the things he says. At one point, he's out on a date with a high school girl, and she points out that it's her birthday tomorrow, (laughs) and he can't help himself but to say, how terrible that is for him because now what's he going to do? Does he have to buy her a gift? And he describes it as inheriting a tragedy. So well, a little he, bit pretentious he verbalizes there. verbalizes all this angst, That's it. Right? He just has thing. to express yeah. it. And there is a wonderful article I'll link to in our show notes. Vikram Murthy wrote for IndieWire back in 2015 when the Music Box here in Chicago did a retrospective on Bombac. And I don't remember this at the time, but they did a really good thing, Josh. They didn't do it chronologically in terms of the year his films were released. They did it chronologically based on the trajectory of the characters, whether they're coming out of high school or they're in college or while we're young would be, of course, the movie that would be at the end of this series, Margot at the Wedding, probably just before it. And he has a line in there from the Max character where he says to Grover, the main character, we stay together out of fear. That's all we know. So he is kind of this fool that we laugh at and laugh with, but at the same time, He's the only one other than maybe the Eric Stoltz character who really seems to understand just how absurd this all is, but he can't get himself out of it. You really have to give credit to the performers and Kicking and Screaming too, because to make those lines, which are so written, right? Yes. To make them work at all, which they largely do, because this is a movie, which I just saw last week for the first time, actually. The screenplay wants to be the star so badly, you know, which I think is maybe the case for for a fair amount of debuts that come from writers slash directors. And yeah, I think the cast, Carlos Jacot is very funny as another one of the friends, does manage to sell this screenplay just enough as something that might come out of somebody's mouth. Okay, my number four is Margot played by Nicole Kidman from Margot at the Wedding. Uh, The movie follows her return to her childhood home here for the wedding of her younger sister. Now, that sister's played by Jennifer Jason Lee, and she's a free-spirited type. Margot's the opposite, controlling, mean-spirited. When she gives a compliment, even the compliment is delivered to sting. It's almost as if everything she says has layer upon layer of, if not insult, definitely insinuation. Will the wedding be crowded? I don't know. I don't think she knows anyone anymore. She's only known this guy a year. Is that short? Would you marry someone you'd only known a year? I can't say I have a lot of hope for the whole thing. Why are we going then? We're supporting her. I thought she wasn't speaking to you. No. No. I wasn't speaking to her, but I'm over it. I think of Nicole Kidman as a very precise actor, and usually that serves her well. It definitely does here because you get this sense of Margot, everything, even though she's quick and it comes out fast, that it has been calculated. She's been prepared mm-hmm. to strike. She's like, it's like a, her conversations are military strikes, you know? And uh, it's just fascinating. She might. B, maybe we'll get into this with other characters, one of Bombac's most unlikable characters, certainly to anchor a film. And there's just something mesmerizing about watching a movie commit to that sort of – I guess the difference is a lot of the miserableism his characters mm-hmm. experience, it's always interior. But there are exterior forces that are also being, by the plot, forced upon them. With Margot, it, it's like – 
she comes in and just brings all the distress mm-hmm. with her. And not a pleasant watch, one of his least funny films, but still one that I like quite a bit. Yeah, for me, it was just a case, I think, of getting lost in that morass of miserableism. I couldn't yeah. I couldn't get out of it. And I didn't find any characters who were redeeming. And I don't mean that in the sense that I have to respect or even like every character, but I couldn't find anything to latch right, no onto anger, with yeah. that movie. I and see that. I really do, as I said at the beginning of the show, feel like it's a movie that it's such a blip on the radar with Bombax's films for me that I'm sure I got it wrong and I need to see it again. Speaking of us getting movies wrong, you knew I was going to have a character from 2014's While We're Young at number four. Just one? one. Well, I could go with the entire ensemble, Josh. But I'm going with Adam Driver's Jamie, who is that hipster kid living in Brooklyn who has aspirations of being a documentary filmmaker and befriends in a very calculated way, we come to learn. I think that word's going to come up a few more times on this list. Ben Stiller's documentary filmmaker character and his wife, played by Naomi Watts. And I was looking back at my notes from the 2014 show where we did our top 10 films of the year, and I basically said, He's one of these characters who it's almost impossible not to want to punch him in the face every moment of the film. And somehow simultaneously, you want to be his best friend. I felt it anyway with that stellar character. There's something so invigorating about his youth, about his seeming earnestness, about his seeming innocence that, again, may all be calculated. And we come to basically learn that most of it is. But there's an energy and there is an optimism to it that is contagious. And it's certainly contagious for the Stiller character. He's someone who you know, I think, Josh, moment to moment, scene to scene, that you're being sold something. You are being sold something. Something feels just a tiny bit off, but you want to buy what he's selling so badly because he's mostly telling you things about yourself that you want to hear that you go along with it. It's a completely different type of script, I think. And there's a different type of wordiness to it than, for example, in Kicking and Screaming. But I think what you said about Eigenman's character and some of those other members of the ensemble in Kicking and Screaming, how they were able to take that heavy dialogue and make it flow and make it seem as natural as it can be. I think there's an element of that with Jamie and with Driver's performance here as well, because he's someone who could just look on the page as someone you could easily dismiss or see as someone who has a certain smugness. And that comes through a little bit, but he's also just so comfortable in his own skin. And I think that more than anything is what comes through with that character. And those lines that are quite funny from the script on the page in anybody else's hands or mouth, I suppose, they might have come off as a little bit absurd or unnatural they come off as natural because of Adam Driver. I feel like there are people who don't drop things as much as I do. I don't keep things your. She's a mess and an ugly eater. I say that with love. you. It's an avocado and almond milk sorbet. Benny designed the container. It tastes like that candy that they sometimes make into pigs or little fruits. Yeah, it's, um, I know that. I keep wanting to say baklava, but that's a mm. Greek dessert. The almond-tasting pigs and fruits are made of... I'll look it up. No, that's too easy. Let's try to remember it. Can I now? No. Let's just not know what it is. Yeah, I feel like I'm still trying to wrap my mind around Adam Driver as a performer, honestly, because Mm -hmm. I've had instances where I feel like... Whatever it is he's doing, which I can't quite identify, doesn't quite work. And while we were young was a case. You of like that. it in Patterson. But 
then he does Patterson, right. which he's masterful in. Mm-hmm. So I think it's at this point, it's me just trying to acclimate myself to Adam Driver. Um, if you're giving Margot a chance, I'll, I'll give uh, what's his name? <laughs> no, you what's won't. his name? And while Jamie, we're young, no. Jamie, you will never give that movie another chance. <laughs> Adam Driver, I didn't say the movie. <laughs> Well, how does here. that get done exactly without rewatching the movie, Josh? I'll watch a few of his scenes. Okay. Let's get to three performances, three characters from Noah Baumbach films that we can absolutely 100% agree with, including The Order. Yes. These are our three favorites, and we've got some voicemail support to help us with this number three pick. Hey, film spotting. It's uh, Jeff Milo for No Michigan. I know you're going to get a thousand calls probably voting for Greta Gerwig playing Francis Ha, and I'm hoping I can make a unique and inspiring case for for her. I, I think we're responding to how she's not just unafraid to show vulnerability, but sometimes uh, blissfully unaware that she is indeed showing vulnerability. And it's a significantly refreshing counterpoint to you know, a lot of the uh, curmudgeonly 45-year-old men that Bombaugh gives us, like in Greenberg or Squid and the Whale, here's a woman who is almost like a meteorite of uh, mirthfulness and outrageousness. And yes, she can be obnoxious, but also lonely and also self-centered and desperate and full of doubt. And um, she's radiating with all of those different shades and uh, what the script's dialogue allows for, all of this uncertainty about how to uh, express that or the uncertainty about how to capture uh, what she wants. Uh, I think that all comes through. And I think that the, the curmudgeonly men would, would have suppressed those feelings under some snide remark. But as she shows in the speech uh, about looking across the room at your love, she's not afraid to tell you anything and everything. And, uh, and she will. It's, it's what I want in a relationship which might explain why I'm single now, ha-ha. <laughs> it's, um, it's kind of hard to... It's that thing when you're with someone and you love them and they know it and they love you and you know it, but it's a party and you're both talking to other people and you're laughing and shining and you look across the room and catch each other's eyes but but not because you're possessive or it's precisely sexual, but because that is your person in this life. And indeed, and Greta Gerwig's Frances Ha is our number three pick. What do we have left to say about Frances Ha that Jeff Milo, unofficially the third member of Film Spotting now, he's appeared in so many recent top fives that he hasn't said about Gerwig and her performance. Yeah, that was really good. I also keyed into the idea of vulnerability that comes with her. And maybe the difference is that she brings a self-awareness to it. Gerwig does mm-hmm. as Frances, where she does have an awareness to this vulnerability or the these character flaws, I guess you could say, but she doesn't obsess over it. Like some of Bombeck's male characters do Mm -hmm. where that becomes the whole point. She kind of glides past it. And at the same time where you feel like 
you almost want to protect her because of that. You also right. admire her because of that. This is how I described her when I wrote about Frances Ha, an aspiring dancer half-heartedly struggling to make ends meet in New York City. She drifts through life like a seed on the wind, occasionally setting on a place that would seem to be fertile, but then blowing along again before getting a chance to bear fruit. And I just loved watching her do that. Even though if you lived in her life, it would frustrate you. As someone who cared for her, it would certainly frustrate you. You just have to admire it because the world has no time for people like that. Right. But you want the world to create a space for them. Yeah. And her insistence on being mm-hmm. that person is what makes her so appealing. Yeah. I went back to my notes from two years prior to seeing While We're Young when we talked about this movie in 2012. And I had some of the same thoughts that I expressed about Jamie with Francis in terms of being kind of a contradiction where you talk about frustrating. Yes, she's 100% endearing and sweet at times. And there's something kind of adorable about her aimlessness. But she's also annoying often at times. And she is someone who maybe me too beaten down by the realities of the world would find her fancifulness a little odd and I wouldn't have time for it. But the way I talked about her was as someone who, even if I never really wanted to see her again, I would have been grateful that I was just in her orbit for the 90 minutes that were in the orbit with her over the course of this film. And that word calculated, I mentioned, she doesn't have one in her body. That's one way she's completely different Mm -hmm. than someone like Jamie. There's nothing conniving about her. She's completely devoid of ambition and you've got someone like jamie who's extremely ambitious but acts like he doesn't care she in contrast cares deeply about everything but is not in it for any kind of personal gain and i do think that makes her a fascinating bombback character and i mentioned that she tackles her performance with almost a screwball comedy energy in this yeah. movie which we get in full force in another performance from her in a bombback film that we might just get to here in a moment. But it doesn't matter how bad the situation is. There's just nothing to her performance that reeks of pretense and there's no sense of entitlement to her character. Everything for her, she's just experiencing life and all its beauty and all of its ugliness the same way. She approaches it the same way. And while it might be unrealistic in real life in the movie world, I'm glad to have spent that time with her. Now, we go from endearing, curious Francis. Delightful. To, <laughs> to someone who's the opposite of delightful with our number two, Josh. Bernard Berkman, Jeff Daniels from The Squid and the Whale. This is who I was thinking of when I said maybe there's, you know, another character who's less likable than Margot. Mm. Margot at the wedding. And it's this guy, this absent, arrogant father, novelist who really teaches more than he writes now. And the story centers around his recent separation from his wife, played by Laura Linney, and how that affects his two teen sons. This takes place 1980s Brooklyn, mm-hmm. I believe. And yeah, it's it's just, you know, Bernard's first priority, even when dealing with his kids, is going to be maintaining his own status, even if it's inflated in his own head. Mm-hmm. And, and these are other shades we see from Harold in the Meyerowitz stories, the Dustin totally. Hoffman character, uh, his own sense of self-importance. And the scene that I revisited that reminded me of this was when he first introduces his sons to the new flat where he's going to live and how he's trying to position that mm-hmm. as a reflection of his own importance as well. Okay. Your mom and I... Okay. Yeah, uh, Mom and I are going, we're going to separate. You're not going to be leaving either of us. We're going to have joint custody. Frank, it's okay. I've got an elegant new house across the park. Across the park? Is that even Brooklyn? 
It's only five stops on the subway. It's an elegant block, the filet of the neighborhood. We'll have a ping pong table. I don't play ping pong. So I think we had a new or greater appreciation for Jeff Daniels when we revisited Something Wild earlier this year. Yes. And, you know, he's there. He was just, he was lightly comic. He was goofy, very likable. We knew all that about him, but he was also giving a full performance there, too. This, man, it's like that has almost almost been completely squashed out of Daniels right. as a human being. And he zeroes in on narcissism, self-obsession. It curdles into this bitterness eventually. Mm-hmm. But I think it works for me because there's still a nice guy residue, huh. Bernard. There's a Jeff Daniels. I don't and know. I don't think he's going for it. <laughs> maybe there's, I, I think maybe it's, it's like, a charm. It's just there's something still there that to me doesn't mean you like the guy. Right. But you see him as human. And maybe that's the distinction with Hoffman's performance. Like, mm-hmm. I still see that there's there's a guy who's hurting a lot of people, but he's also hurt. Um, and because it's Jeff Daniels, that comes through. Yeah, the hurt definitely comes through. And I don't remember who we were talking about earlier. Maybe it was during our conversation about the Meyerowitz stories. But he's another character from a Bombback film who is a writer and who exists and functions almost like he's narrating his own story. He talks like the narrator in a novel is writing about him with that same kind of air of pretentiousness. Mm -hmm. And he doesn't have an internal monologue. He just has to voice everything he's feeling every moment. He can't suppress anything. And I suppose that's something that is a little bit endearing while at the same time, he's mostly complaining about whatever it is that seems to be conspiring against him. I think on this list, certainly of Bombat characters, we have to have a bad dad, as that's been a common theme that's run through these films. And I think he's the ultimate terrible dad. And you touched on this briefly. You brought it up during our Meyerowitz review. Watching some scenes from this today, it really hit me how connected Meyerowitz is to the squid and the whale, because I think in the Walt and Frank relationships and the relationship they individually have to their father, you see that in the form of Danny Mm -hmm. and Matthew in Meyerowitz, they are perhaps the grown-up versions of those characters where one has nothing but resentment towards him. The other one does seem to be a little bit more favored, perhaps, and wants to favor him and wants to love him back, but still ends up harboring some resentment. And like the father, you mentioned this, like Dustin Hoffman in Meyerowitz, there's that competition, the competitive streak. He always has to win, not just with his wife or with his colleagues, or anyone else, but with his own children. And it makes me think of a line from the latest film, where I think it's the Stiller character says to Hoffman's, you were the only artist in the family. Maybe it was Sandler. One of the two sons says to Dustin Hoffman, you could be the only artist in the family. You're always talking about how, you know, we didn't fulfill these talents we had. Well, basically, you wouldn't let us, because you could never stand one of us transcending you. And that comes through 100% with the Jeff Daniels character. He is ultimately a phony because he wants to foster this creativity and this talent or seems to want to, but at the same time, he would never let them exceed his own abilities or have more esteem than him. Well, the competitiveness, another scene I watched was the terrible family tennis match. Oh, yeah. Where he's, I mean, he's just wants to devour them You mean all. A, a depiction of my family bowling? Yeah, that was, <laughs> Oh, we bowled on. in Iowa. I, I, oh, it went badly? Because the last time we all bowled as families, you were quite polite yeah, with each other. Yeah, but we were. When, when there are guests I was around. Oh, that malt liquor again. <laughs> that malt liquor again, Josh. And we have to say, while we're talking about Bernard, 
he gave us the line, oh, that's minor Dickens. I mean, <laughs> I think I've said it before, but that still comes up maybe a couple times a month in casual conversation. We just want to dismiss something, even though you don't know what you're talking about. Just refer to it as minor whatever. It works. And it works, Josh. Okay. Our number one, Noah Baumbach character. Are we really going with yet another Greta Gerwig performance? Oh, yeah. We have to. I agree. And the question might be, why Brooke from Mistress America over Francis from Francis Ha? It's a question I ask myself uh, because I love both of them. And I think for me, it's that there's a forcefulness to this performance here that distinguishes it not only from Francis, but a lot of Gerwig characters. Uh, she has brought a certain flightiness, you could say, to some of her performances. Not all of them. This one, though, she takes comic charge. She's going for big laughs. And she lands them. Uh, Brooke is the overconfident 30-something New Yorker who she hasn't really accomplished all that much, but she certainly acts like she has. She's this tornado of creativity and ideas. And in the film, she takes her college-age stepsister, who's played by a very good Lola Kirk, under her wing yeah. until this stepsister starts to realize that uh, the empress has no clothes. <laughs> I think Brooke, you know, she gets the great entrance, right, the on the stairs in Times Square. Mm -hmm where she comes down and says, uh, welcome to the Great White Way. <laughs> yeah. And it's very impressive. It's very dramatic. And the Lola Kirk character is obviously like, wow, uh -huh. who, who's this person? And then <laughs> she realizes there's 30 stairs yeah. to go yet. And yeah. so still waiting. What am I going to do now? It and undercuts kinda, her authority. It's such her a great scene. completely. Yeah. And Gerwig, who we already know from Francis Ha and other films, is uh, an expert comedian with, dialogue here she's throwing in a lot of physical comedy as well and mm -hmm. it comes it plays into that stairway scene so yeah it does i think that she's certainly very aware the brooke character is very aware that she's playing a character and i think if i could try to sum up at all why she's my number one it has to do with the fact that she is someone within the context of the story of this story mistress america who the tracy character is so drawn to that she constructs this whole universe around her. She writes a story about her. And Brooke, that character, we have to see that. That has to come through. We have to want to construct our own narrative almost and follow her through the course of this whole movie simply because we see her as so outlandish, as so bigger than life. Mm -hmm. And we can't wait to see if the depth that seems to be there at first is really there at all, or if it's all a facade, and the more that facade starts to crack, the more interesting Brooke becomes. I'm impressed, Brooke. It takes a lot of moxie to start a restaurant. Thanks. You're doing it, babe. You're out there doing something besides amassing and hoarding money. If I could figure out how to amass and hoard money, I'd do it. Well, you could have married me or a dozen other guys, but you wanted to be your own person. Yeah, no, I'm over that now. <laughs> You're funny because you don't know you're funny. I know I'm funny. There's nothing I don't know about myself. That's why I can't do therapy. Any other characters you want to give some love to, Josh? Absolutely. Okay. Ben Stiller and Greta Gerwig together in Greenberg. Mm -hmm. uh, she plays Florence. He's Greenberg. I completely buy both of those uniquely miserable characters in their own way. I don't know if I buy the movie romance that develops between them, but in terms of characters, they're fantastic. I do like Jennifer Jason Lee in Margot at the Wedding as well as the younger sister. She has a, a sad loopiness to her that's, that's very precise. 
Ramona Ray, played by Annabella Sciorra in Mr. Jealousy. Yeah, the one I haven't seen. I just caught up with it myself. She's really delightful and, and funny, has a light touch, and I don't know what my impression of her was from other movies that she made back in that era, um, but it wasn't this. It, it was maybe more serious and, and that she hadn't really done all that much, but she's a lot of fun in Mr. Jealousy. And I mentioned Carlos Jacot from kicking and screaming he's got a supporting part here as well um as this um he's this easily flabbergasted friend of eric stoltz's title character Mm. he almost steals the movie lucretia as we embark on what will hopefully be a lifelong journey together uh i find myself asking myself what is a marriage webster's defines marriage very succinctly very clinically and told me nothing i didn't already know uh friends and family all echoed similar themes, and yet, still, I found no enlightenment. And then it hit me. True love defies, def- <clears throat> True love defies definition. We've come back to the future from October 2017, our top five Noah Baumbach characters. You can find that top five and many, many others in the Film Spotting Archive. For as little as $5 a month, you can get access to the complete archive going back to 2005, plus all the bonus shows. It's over something like 1,100 or 1,200 episodes. You can also get monthly bonus shows, one of our offerings to Film Spotting family members. And the next one we've agreed on and that I'm excited about is another draft. We did the A24 draft on the show. We did a Spielberg draft as a bonus show. And Keith Moser wrote in, Josh, and said, what about Best Picture winners? Turns out Oscar nominations are going to be announced on January 24th. So coming at the end of the month, tying in with that, we are going to do a draft along with our producer, Sam, exclusively for our film spotting family members. They can hear us picking our five best Best Picture winners out of the 95, Keith says. That includes both Wings and Sunrise, A Song of Two Humans, since the first ceremony had two best categories, he notes. Now, I'm just going to warn you in advance, and Sam, I know, is listening to this. It's Serpentine again, so be ready. I have time to do some research. Uh huh. And for all those who were aghast at the fact that I didn't know what it was, I I recalled (laughs) later when I was playing fantasy football— we did an auction draft. Yeah. So that that's why this was all all new mm. to me. I am going to oh, I'm just gonna research the heck out of serpentine drafts and I come know you are fully loaded knowing just how to manipulate this thing. No, I'll I'll probably just, you know, choose Wing Sunrise, it. a song of two humans, because <laughs> well, it's on my top ten list of all time. So Yeah, you can't really go wrong with that unless I get the first pick and try to get revenge on you for Ladybird. Yeah. You could, but that's all right. Serpentine, I, I think if I remember correctly, that means then I get the next 17 picks. Correct. Okay. Yeah, it all it all balances out. More information about that bonus show and more bonus content is available at filmspottingfamily.com. Josh, that's our show. If you want to connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, or Letterboxd, Adam is at Filmspotting and I'm at Larson on Film. Over at filmspotting.net, you can vote in the current film spotting poll. We're asking, what is your most anticipated sequel of 2023? Also on the website, you can find t-shirts or other merch. Just go to filmspotting.net slash shop. Out in limited release, you can see Skinamarink. Two children wake up in the middle of the night to find their father missing, and all of the windows and doors of their house have vanished. That's at the Music Box. In wide release, somebody decided to remake the 1990 kid-and-play comedy House Party. 
I don't know why. A Man Called Otto is out. This is expanding to more theaters. Tom Hanks stars in a remake of the 2015 Swedish film that I've been avoiding pronouncing here on the show because I don't know if it's A Man Called Ove, A Man Called Ova. Do you know, Josh? Go with Ove. I'll go with Ove. Plane is also out. Gerard Butler is a pilot who lands his storm-damaged plane in a war zone. And in case anyone's confused over that, it is spelled P-L-A-N-E. I know this is a very complicated movie, but Mm -hmm. plain. Next week, podcast and radio listeners will hear our 2022 rap party live in Brooklyn. You will hear our picks for all of the best scenes of the year helping us to do that. Dana Stevens from Slate, Griffin Newman from Blank Check, Matt Singer and Allison Wilmore, formerly of Film Spotting SVU, currently of Screen Crush and Vulture, respectively. Can't wait to share a stage with all four of them. Again, if you happen to be listening and it's not quite 8 p.m. Eastern time on Saturday night, January 14th in New York, you can still make it. The Bell Get House in Brooklyn. Here. Yep. Hurry up. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Halgren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistants are Betty Lavendero and Veronica Phillips. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.